Hello, party poopers! It is the IBS Freedom Podcast, and once again, I am joined by the wonderful, the beautiful Amy Kim Art. Hello. Hello. I feel like these have been especially sweet lately. Well, Maybe you know, I'm less... smitten. I'm smitten. What can I say? You're, you're my favorite pod person. Aww. Side note, for Halloween, next year, can we be pod people together, and then we could like, make Instagram reels together? I feel like that could be a pretty amazing Halloween opportunity. We would have to envision, like, what our version of pod people would look like, but I think that could be a fun one, since I call you my pod person. Yeah, for sure. But per per the huge, the good folks at home already read the topic for today when they clicked on this episode, but care to reveal anyhow? We're talking about diarrhea today. Diarrhea. So this is the yin to the yang of our previous conversation around constipation. So now... We're going to do better, Amy. You ready for this? <laughs> Let's talk about what the definition of consti- or what the definition of diarrhea is because it took us 42 minutes into the constipation episode to reveal the definition for our good people at home. So, how would you define diarrhea? If somebody, you know, some alien off the streets mm. came in and was like, "What is diarrhea? Why should I listen to this episode?" What would you tell that alien who apparently hey. doesn't poop? Well, I think that there's, like, sometimes a frequency component. There's sometimes, and I think more often than not, I think of diarrhea as being a consistency problem. So, like, having loose stools often where things aren't formed properly. If you go to the Bristol stool chart, that's an easy one to kind of look up. If you're in the, like, six to seven, it's definitely, I would say, diarrhea. Uh, or or problematic. Even five's kind of borderline there. But if you're you're having loose stools regularly um, every day, that's kind of problematic. I think for some people, there's urgency involved, where they're kind of rushing to the to the bathroom. Yeah. Um, some people have high frequency, so they're going you know more than three or four times a day. Um, yeah. And it's it's looser on the looser end. Those would be the main things that I would see, say that stick out to me. It's kind of the urgency, sometimes higher frequency. But when I really think of diarrhea, I think of like the consistency not being quite yeah. right. Do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, that that's about what I was going to say, too. I think that the consistency is probably the number one that we look for. Like, is it watery, like Bristol stool type seven? Is it like, you know a bushy blob of chocolate pudding and it has no form and it just kind of like disintegrates when it hits the bowl. But maybe when it left your body, it had slightly more form to it than a type seven would. Or is it like loose blobs that maintain some degree of form in the toilet, but not a heck of a lot. Um, I think that the consistency is going to be the big one followed by, yes, I think if you're pooping more than, three times a day. Like I feel like one, two or three bowel movements a day is pretty normal. And then Mm -hmm. if you start getting into like the four plus per day range, then I'd be thinking that that's atypical. Now somebody could be constipated and have little marbly rabbit pellet turds and they could be excreting one little rabbit pellet every time they poop and they could be pooping four or five times a day and be constipated. But I think certainly if you have like looser stools and you're going more frequently, 
or if you just have looser stools and it's not necessarily a frequency issue, or if you're finding that you have to run to the bathroom because you might not be able to hold it, that's mm. that's more of what I would classify as diarrhea as well. And of course, like constipation, there's a lot of different causes, right? So you want to yeah. maybe start off kind of mirroring the pattern from our last episode. Let's talk about microbial reasons why somebody could have diarrhea as a starting point. Yeah. Well, again, I, I think of SIBO. I think probably everyone that, that listens to our podcast could think of, of SIBO as a microbial component. Yeah. I also think typically the the gut pathogens are much more diarrhea promotive um, mm-hmm. just because they're so inflammatory. So if you have some sort of gut pathogen or you had food poisoning yeah. or a gut infection, that's going to be more diarrhea predominant Um at least at first, again, when it's acutely acutely present. Um, so I think that those are, are big. Probably if you have an overgrowth, even if you don't have SIBO, but you have too much bad bugs in your colon or dysbiosis, that could lead to, to diarrhea. Um, but those would probably be the biggies. And it, probably not having enough good bugs to, to talk yeah. about balance. But that's sort of, I guess similar to dysbiosis like having an imbalance yeah um of good to bad um those would probably be the biggest ones that i can think of um kind of infections SIBO and dysbiosis in general um i'm trying to think if there's any other particular things microbial that I could think of. I I would say parasitic infections lean a bit more towards diarrhea typically. Right. Um, you know, you can have a parasite be constipated. I'm not saying that's impossible, right. but I think that the likelihood of a parasitic infection is higher with diarrhea. Mm. Um, and you'd be surprised too. I don't know if you've seen this much, but I have had people come back with confirmed cases of Giardia mm-hmm. on like LabCorp stool test, not even a GI right. map, like LabCorp stool testing mm-hmm. showed Giardia. Um, I remember this woman had, they, they labeled it IBS and right. she had chronic bloating and diarrhea and she didn't know why. And we just, we did some stool testing right out the get go, came back with a case of Giardia. She had no idea how she got it. She was like, I go nowhere. Right. She was like, I stay in Raleigh and I walk down the road to the dog park with my two golden retrievers and then I go home. And that's the only thing I do. This was pre-COVID even. And she's like, I don't leave the house. Like, I don't know where I got Giardia, but treating it made her feel a heck of a lot better. Right. So, you know, parasites are always on the table, um, particularly with diarrhea. And I think to your point, I think so much of the microbial conversation is a spectrum where like on the far, far, far end, we have things that are bad all the time in any quantity. So like Giardia, if you have a little bit of Giardia, that's worthy of your attention and concern, Mm. right? Like there's no, there's no normal amount of Giardia in the human GI tract. Um, Similarly, like, you know, things like Campylobacter, Shigella, cholera, Mm -hmm. like some of these real nasty nasties, they are always abnormal in any quantity. Mm. You find that, you treat it ASAP. Then a little bit shy of that, you have the things that are pathobionts 
mm-hmm. which are like they're bad, but they're not so bad. So these would be things like E. coli, um, like your run of the mill E. coli, not necessarily like the entrotoxigenic and the right. Shigella like. Like I'm talking like page two of the GI map for right. for those of you who know that test. But like E. coli. Klebsiella, Pseudomonas, Staphylococcus, Streptococcus, stuff like that, that like you don't want a lot of it. Yeah, Morganella. Um, Right. You don't want a lot of it, but if you see like a teeny tiny amount of that coming back as a commensal on your stool test, that's not necessarily cause for concern. Right. And then there's like the medium guys who don't really do anything particularly good or particularly bad. They're just kind of hanging out. So I'm picturing like the Bacteroidetes group, for example. Right. They're not the best. They're not the worst. They're kind of in between, hanging out. And right. then you've got on the the other far end of the spectrum, you have the good guys. So these are like your Lactobacilli, your Bifidobacterium, Acromantia, Fecalobacterium, Eubacterium, Roseburia, stuff like that that are like producing some good compound for you and doing you a lot of favors. So right, the far end of the spectrum, like the overt pathogens, like Giardia high likelihood of causing diarrhea when they are present. Mm. The pathobionts, like the Klebsiella, E. coli, Pseudomonas, Morganella kind of crowd, I would still say they're leaning more towards causing diarrhea rather than constipation for most people, but not always. Um, The medium guys, I wouldn't sweat too much in this context. And then the deficiency of those good guys, like not having enough of the short chain fatty acids or, um, you know, things like lactic acid or, you know, the, the compounds that your good bacteria make for you. I think a lack of those good guys can also definitely cause diarrhea for people. Yeah. And I, I think some of this stuff can be compounded or even like standalone if the immune system isn't functioning super great in the gut environment. Again, let's say you have a vitamin A or vitamin D deficiency or deficiency in some of these immune-based compounds where, like, inflammation isn't being controlled. Like, I think inflammation, especially, like, where it's kind of showing up on a test. I mean, obviously, the most clear depiction of this would be some of the IBDs. Mm -hmm. But I think that, you know, if there's uncontrolled inflammation at the gut lining, whether it's being caused by pathogens of some sort or dysbiosis of some sort um, or from some other causes or compounding factors of some of the dysbiosis, it can be something to consider too. Like how is the immune system functioning at the gut lining? How, how are you controlling inflammation at the gut lining? Because that could, yeah. could help a lot with inflammation and help yeah. with some of the diarrhea. I don't know if this segue was intentional on your part. If it was, bravo to you. I don't think it was. I didn't have an agenda. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to give you credit anyway. Let's segue into mast cell stuff. Because, mm. again, like, nothing is clear cut in this world. Like, for example, there are people, just briefly to go back to the previous point, there are people with methane overproduction who have diarrhea. Yeah. And there are people with hydrogen sulfide overproduction who have diarrhea or constipation. There are people with hydrogen, uh, hydrogen SIBO who have constipation. So like there's general kind of patterns that we're going to point out in these episodes, but nothing is a hard, fast, 100% of the time rule. So keep mm-hmm. that in mind. But 
one of the things that I've noticed is that overt, overt in your face mast cell disease. So like mastocytosis and mast mm-hmm. cell activation disorder tend to skew more towards diarrhea most mm-hmm. frequently from what I've seen. Right. Now your your run of the mill histamine intolerance, oh I get the occasional eczema or oh I get the occasional sinus infection, like that sort of stuff is a little bit less clear. But the really like the people who have confirmed cases of mast cell disease, I'm noticing a stronger predilection towards diarrhea in those individuals. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's something to it with like the mast cell activation and what what they're spewing out when they degranulate, promoting more of a diarrhea pattern for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. That's that's such a good a good catch. I think just clinically noticing that. That's probably about what I've seen. I don't think I've necessarily looked thoroughly or um really thought closely about the presentation diarrhea versus constipation and mast cells, but now that you're saying it, I, I that's that's basically what I've seen too. But yeah, I I think the inf- the inflammatory chemicals that are spewing out in something like a mast cell scenario yeah. is going to be where probably leans a little bit closer to to diarrhea just with the inflammatory response being involved yeah. not to say that that can't be at play in constipation but i think it generally yeah. leans a little bit more on the diarrhea side i think there's something to be said too that with stuff like that like you know i have, I have videos for example um, I have one video on my YouTube channel about how SIBO can cause weight gain. And then I have mm, another video right. about how SIBO can cause weight loss. Right. And sometimes the di- the dichotomy um, with stuff like this, like constipation versus diarrhea, weight gain versus weight loss from the exact same condition, it could be a bit of a head scratcher for people. Right. And I think that it's like dysfunction or inflammation or impairment will will highlight your kind of tendencies and your your existing dysfunction. It'll highlight that. So like for one person, they could get stressed. Like actually I, I spoke with a an old friend recently from school. Mm. Uh he was way overworking himself. Mm. Like working uh going through a very tough graduate school program. Um He's tried to start a business. He has three children at home. He's working. You know, he's just, he's been killing himself. And he he had some really scary neurological symptoms Mm. pop up. And he was like, I I thought I was dying for a couple of months. Oh my God. Like, I legitimately thought I was dying. He was having some POTS kind of issues. Like, I think some sort of movement disorder kind of stuff like losing, you know, losing muscle tone in his facial muscles, like all sorts mm-hmm. of swirly stuff. And then he eventually got to the point where he realized that it was stress induced. Mm-hmm. And we were joking on the phone when I talked about it. I was like, you broke your brain with stress. <laughs> right. you broke your brain. And he, he even admitted, he was like, yeah, you know, I think probably this was like kind of very quietly bubbling in the background, like from a genetic susceptibility or like a life susceptibility standpoint. And then when I was super duper stressed at the height of this graduate program, while having our third child, while working, while starting a business, like with all, when all the shit hit the fan, it allowed this thing to bubble up more. Mm -hmm. And similarly, like for me, I think 
you know, it's like, I clearly had a celiac gene, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you don't get celiac disease without a celiac gene. And then a number of things in my life, like antibiotic use, concussion, stress, whatever. Drinking the creek water. Yeah, drinking the creek water. Like, all of those things brought out that thing in me. Mm. But there's like 40% of the Caucasian population that has a celiac gene and they never get celiac disease. Right. So it's like we have, we all have tendencies and little quirky things that could pop up if we don't play our cards right. And then when Mm. we get inflamed or we have some sort of dysfunction, it's like that's going to show itself. So for some people, it's going to be more of an immune thing. For some people, it's going to be more neurological, like my friend. For me, when I've got weird stuff going on, it almost always starts in my gut. For other people, it might be skin, like eczema or psoriasis or something. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, I I forget what my initial point was in this. I think we were segueing off of mast cells somehow. Um, But it's like, you can have people with the same diagnosis, the same root cause, who have different presentations. And it's like, Mm -hmm. their body, their genetics, their tendencies, their health history is going to be different enough that it might manifest in two different ways. So I'm sure there are mast cell patients who have constipation, but I tend to see them have diarrhea more frequently. Right. Right. I, I think you're you're accurate there. I also think too, you know, with with diarrhea, I know we were talking about like bile acid uh malabsorption type yeah. diarrhea, which I know is fairly common. I, I think it's underdiagnosed a lot of the times, and there can be underlying issues at play like inflammation or IBD or, you know, maybe you had your gallbladder removed or something that can sometimes cause it. But bile acid malabsorption is essentially, there's kind of different ideas on it. I don't know if you've kind of found that there's different thought processes on how the bile gets in the colon. Um, Because there's like, the original thinking is that you're not absorbing reabsorbing the bile. Bile is naturally released in the small intestines to help you digest fat. But then by the end of the small intestines, that bile's supposed to be majority like reabsorbed. There should be very little bile going into the colon. So when you have bile... like 95% or something like that. Right. So when you have bile acid diarrhea, essentially there's way more bile in the colon and it's leading to, to diarrhea. And... I was reading something prior to this call where some scientists think it's a feedback loop issue, meaning that like some of the receptors in the in the small intestines are not sending the right signaling back to the gallbladder or whatever. And so there's there's more release of bile acids. Hmm. And then again, there's also and it could be a mixture of both. There might not be a right or wrong answer for this but some people just might not be absorbing reabsorbing the the bile but i think that that could is certainly a factor for a number of clients i've worked with where they've had more of a bile acid presentation so i i think again a lot of what underlies that can be inflammation like i i almost think exploring the underlying factors for that inflammation of of sorts again ibd is like probably a really common one. I think things like SIBO could do that. I think 
again, gallbladder removal, where there's like yep. less regulation of bile flow from because now the liver's in charge of it and the liver's just not as good at managing bile for us can be a little bit that can make it a little bit more problematic. But yeah, I think I think it can be a common one. Do you have any thoughts on bile acid malabsorption? Yeah, yeah and I, I'm working with a couple of cases with this right now. So I've kind of been like reading up on it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So a couple fold is, you're right. So there's this thought that your your liver produces bile and then it's concentrated in the gallbladder. And then when you need it, you get a nice hefty squirt of the right. concentrated stuff. And then that takes a ride down the small intestine, emulsifies your fat, helps you digest fat. And then the majority, like 95% of that bile should be reabsorbed at the tail end of the ileum Mm -hmm. and make its way back up to be recycled so that your liver doesn't have to be producing as much bile on a day-to-day. There are receptors in the terminal ileum that seem to influence that or dictate that. It seems that there's, and I forget exactly if it's a consequence of Crohn's or if it's like an associated thing. But I remember reading somewhere that in Crohn's patients, there might be a lack of that receptor feedback that's appropriate. Right. Um, So sometimes just looking to see if the person has Crohn's could be useful. But two things that I've read a bit about that seem to impact that stress chemistry is one. Um, If I remember correctly, it was cortisol. It could have been corticotropin-releasing hormone or some other Mm -hmm. stress chemical. But I remember reading a little bit about stress chemistry impacting that reabsorption in the terminal ileum, Mm -hmm. which makes a heck of a lot of sense. Right. Um, The other thing that's more recent that's really surprising is blood sugar seems Mm -hmm. to be related. So there's a group of drugs. And hold on. let Let me just do a quick Google. Okay, I'm pretty sure they are GLP-1 receptor agonists, mm. if I remember correctly. But there's these these group of, of drugs that are being researched currently for type 2 diabetes and obesity, treating both of those conditions. Mm. And they do so by impacting GLP-1 receptors. It seems that There's been at least one study, there might have been two that I was able to find, where they used one of these GLP-1 receptor agonist drugs in somebody with bile acid malabsorption, and then their bile acid malabsorption problem went away. Whoa. Yeah, and it starts to make you chew on this a little bit and think, okay, is balancing blood sugar the Mm. bigger thing that we need to be doing? Is that part of the mechanism of why that, that... receptor in that pathway and that reabsorption is getting messed up. Again, this is very new. I think the the studies that I saw in this were like 2019. So it's very fresh. Um, And these drugs are still relatively new. They haven't been out for all that long, but it's really, really intriguing to kind of dive into that. And I actually, I need to, I need to do better for my YouTube followers because I did a video about bile acid malabsorption and I mentioned this body of research And I asked in the video, I said, if you guys want me to do a video on this GLP-1 kind of thing and explain it a little bit more, let me know in the comments. And a bunch of people said, yes, please do a video. And I haven't gotten around to doing it yet. So if you are one of the people who commented, I'm sorry, I do have that on the radar to do eventually on my YouTube channel, but I just hadn't gotten around to it yet. But it 
yeah, it's, it's deeply intriguing, especially when you think there are natural compounds that can impact right. GLP-1. Right. So you start kind of wondering mm. what we could do from like a nutrition perspective or an herbal perspective to help regulate that pathway so that your ileum can reabsorb your bile acids more efficiently. So interesting. I, I think the stress piece is interesting too, because, and it makes sense, but we think about having, we've both had stress, have had stress poops in our lifetime. Yep. And I feel like, you know, some of the presentations of some of the clients I have, they have periods of really acute stress and you'll see a lot more diarrhea in those situations. So, so that makes sense. I think again, like with the bile acid presentation, there's a sometimes more urgency. I also think there's a little bit more like having needing to go to the bathroom in the night is another mm. potential symptom to look yeah. out for compared to other like mm. presentations of diarrhea. Um, I would say also more discoloration. Right, like, like green. If, yeah, like greenish or yellowish. Um, right. Like the color of bile. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Those are things to, to keep an eye out on. And I think the nervous system stuff in general, too, is interesting. I know we talked about in the constipation side of things, like, oh, like dysautonomia and nervous system issues can lead to constipation predominant. But also, I think the the same thing could be said, like you were saying yeah. earlier, about different. The same thing could lead to different presenta- presentations in different people, and it's probably yep. because there's multifactorial things at play. Yeah. But you know, if you're struggling with anxiety or struggling with brain gut access um, issues in some way, like again, maybe you have the antivinculin antibody from a mm-hmm. fast past food poisoning incident. Um, Maybe, again, you you struggle with just a really stressful life that's affecting vagal tone. You certainly could have diarrhea as well from just the stress of it all. Absolutely. And again, it's interesting you bring up the bile acid malabsorption piece potentially being like the feedback loop being mm-hmm. hijacked by cortisol in yeah. some way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's. It's worth pointing out briefly, too, that I think your body is smarter than you will ever understand. And I really think that the body has a way of knowing on some level when it's safe to collapse and it's Mm. relatively safe to be symptomatic versus needing to push through an acutely stressful thing. So, for example... In the constipation episode, I revealed that historically, most of my life, I've struggled with constipation. But when I was in college and I was a rower, I would have the nervous poops and I would have to run off and have diarrhea before every test. And I feel like that's an example where like my body knew like, okay, it is, it's relatively safe for me to go have a quick urgent poop. Mm. But like, if I was you know, running away from a mugger or I don't know, like a chainsaw murderer, axe murderer, I feel like I wouldn't poop my pants in that moment, but I would probably poop a lot after I got away. You know what I mean? Right. And like, I've seen this with but my But do own we know, have, have you been chased? Maybe. I have not been chased by an axe murderer with a chainsaw. So mm. maybe that's why I don't know. But, you know, it's like, but. <laughs> 
Also, like, if you think, and, and right. like, trigger warning, perhaps, for people, but if you think, I feel like the the stories and the narrative I've heard around sexual assault, mm. like, that's something yeah. super, super traumatic. I feel like I have yet to hear a story where somebody was physically, like, sexually assaulted, and they had like diarrhea right there on the spot while they were being assaulted right like i think that the body kind of has some general awareness it might not be i think you're right i I think you're you're dead on yeah and like and i'll share something that's not in any way shape or form as severe as what i just talked about but did i ever tell you about the grand pink guy of it was probably 2010 oh no no okay no i've not heard about this Okay. So it it's going to have a point, I swear. Just stick with me for a minute. So in chiropractic school, we have the national board exam, but it's broken up into four chunks. So you take part one when you're about a year into school, and then you take part two, two, three, you take together, and then part four you take later on. And each of these is throughout school, though. Like part four you take when you're about to graduate, basically. Well, getting ready for part one, that's like the most academic of them, like just mm-hmm. like a lot of, you know, how much do you remember from biochemistry? How many things do you remember from anatomy? It's a lot more just like book learning. And mm-hmm. it was the first one we had taken. All of us were stressed out from it. And I'm a pretty good test taker, so I wasn't like terrified of it, but I was definitely more stressed than I normally would be. And it's a six part exam. So you take part one, you have a break, you take part two, and you keep going back and forth. Well, towards the end of the fifth part of this exam, my eye started to itch a lot. And I had this awareness. I was like, I should probably run home and take my contacts out. But they had this rule where like they were supposed to keep us in the room for the full hour because Mm -hmm. everybody across the country was taking the exact same test at the exact same time. Mm -hmm. And it's like part of the protocol is like, nope, you stay in the room for an hour. But I was done early. I was like, ah, this eye is really itching. And I raised my hand and I was like, look, I'm so sorry. I know you're not supposed to do this, but like, can I leave a little bit early? Because if I leave right now, I have enough time. I can go home, take the contacts out, get my glasses and come back in time and I'll make it for the last exam. And they let me go. And I was like, on the way to the car, I was like, that lady was so nice. She didn't have to do that. I know she could get in trouble for doing that, but that was really cool of her to let me go and run back and get my glasses. And then I pulled down my visor in the car and I looked at my eyeball and I was like, oh, oh God, it was gross. That's why she let me go because she could see visibly that my eyeball was infected. I was like, oh God. So I go home. Luckily, I was very close by. I went home, took out the contacts, threw it away put on my glasses, went back to my last exam. And then throughout the exam, my other eye started to itch. And I was like, oh, God. And I was not, you know, touching them. By the end of that sixth exam, I had double pink eye. Like full-blown, pus, red, itchy, swollen, nasty pink eye in both eyeballs. I, it was like, collapsing over the finish line and my body my body just knew like okay now it's safe to collapse it wasn't ideal but my body did limp all the way through that six-part exam and i collapsed over the finish line and it was just so funny because all of my schoolmates 
were like, let's go drink. And they wanted to go to bars. And I just, I told my friends, I was like, I'm going to go home. I'm going to get Ben and Jerry's and I'm going to watch Mulan in my pajamas. You're welcome to join me if you want. Or you can go oh to the bars. And a couple of my friends, to their credit, came and just crashed with me. And we watched Mulan and ate Ben and Jerry's that evening. Oh but yeah, I got a double pink eye. But I think, you know, similarly, um, one of the patients that I'm working with, with bile acid malabsorption, we've talked about this quite a bit, that she she has recurrent um, profound stress in her life. And there's not mm. really a lot we can do to get around that at the moment. Um but she's noticed that, like, the day that she has a stressful thing, mm. she's usually pretty okay. But it's, like, the day or two or three after that, she'll right. oftentimes have a flare. And we've talked about this, how, like, I think your body knows that you need to get through that thing on that day. And that it's safer for you to be symptomatic and collapse and burst into flames mm. after the fact. So don't, you know... The pattern with stress and diarrhea in particular can be really weird to parse out because our logical brain thinks, oh, if I'm stressed on Tuesday, then I must have diarrhea on Tuesday. And if it's not that pattern, then it must not be stressed. And I would encourage Mm -hmm. you to see outside of that understanding of it and look to the days surrounding the stressful Mm -hmm. event. Yeah, it's a good point. I also, one other sort of area to ruminate on a bit is we talked about movement in the last mm-hmm. the last constipation um episode but i think over exercise tends to be more diarrhea inducing mm. and i think it's it has to do a little bit more with some of the inflammation that can happen if you're doing really high intensity exercise for longer periods of time. Like I'm thinking like endurance exercising, sometimes yep. CrossFit, it sort of falls into this like higher intensity. Marathons, triathlons. Marathons. And it's like when you have so much oxygen and resources leaving the gut for, for a longer span of time, it can lead to more inflammation in the small intestines and beyond in the gut. Um, it tends to cause, like, the gut doesn't like being super hot. So there's kind of a heat that happens when you exercise that the gut doesn't really like that it inflames it a bit. And then also just the lack of oxygen to the gut creates problems. But they even have a term for it in the running community, the runner's trots which is like runners that get diarrhea. It's like super, super common. I ran cross country and it's not even that we were running like tons of mileage, but like if you're putting your body under like incredible stress physically, um, it can be problematic. And I think certain individuals can adapt to it better than others. And again, there, there is an adaptation that happens, but sometimes too, if you're going from, like zero exercise, and then you're doing an intense boot camp program starting in the new year, and your body isn't used to any of the stuff that's going on gut-wise when you're exercising, that's when you can run into a little bit of problem. So if you notice, too, that like if you do more high-intensity stuff or if you're someone that's like a high-intensity exerciser, it can be a little bit tricky, but even reducing the intensity a little bit or reducing mileage... And seeing how your gut feels. I mean, I have some runners that I've worked with where 
cutting back on mileage has done wonders for them. And sometimes they can even increase again later. But it's really hard for them to get control of their gut symptoms while they're doing like heavy mileage um, at a particular point in their journey. Yeah. And I would throw out there two other pieces with regard to exercise. A, disordered eating and under eating. (laughs) More Mm -hmm. common amongst athletes, I would wager. Um, Especially like I'm picturing, God, like figure posing is notorious for this and like bodybuilding kind of sports are notorious for this. Like I knew a girl woman, she's a little bit older than me, but I knew a woman, uh, I went to high school with her. We're Facebook friends. She did figure posing for a couple of years and she literally was like, Oh, I ate nothing but chicken and broccoli Mm. for months and months and months. And I was weightlifting like a crazy person. And like, she looked ripped. Like, she was nothing but pure muscle. Mm. But, like, how how much abuse can the body take before it gives, right? So, Mm. like, for, I think that the disordered eating and under eating thing is going to be more prevalent in extreme athletic circles. Um, I would also say there are a lot of people who use exercise as an escape from their stress. (laughs) And then it's almost like, if if you're super stressed because you're in an unhappy marriage or an unhappy relationship or you're overworking yourself or you hate your job or you hate your life, you hate your whatever. If you are that stressed that then you use exercise as a coping mechanism and you're literally running away from your stress every day when you run, it, it might also mm-hmm. be mixed in with the stress chemistry piece of it of like, Maybe the ultimate thing you need to do is like be a little bit more moderate on your exercise and look at the stress and the mental health part of what's going on and like maybe marry the two of those together. Because I think an awful lot of people use stress as an escape from their, or I'm sorry, they use exercise as an escape from their stress, particularly in like, you know, marathon, triathlon, like those really intense kind of athletes, I think do that more frequently. Well, I'm I'm so glad that you brought that up. It's definitely a discussion I have with clients who I feel like are falling into that mentality. And and a lot of times I'm like, okay, I understand that that's a stress reliever for you. But like, why can't we find something that's more still? Like, so I almost present it in that way. But it also brings brings up like my dad in particular was a marathon runner. I don't think he's and I get, I love my, my dad. My, I think both my parents have work to do in terms of like stress management, but you know, he always felt like, oh, I like wasn't regulated unless I ran or I, you know, I have to run, but every like run or bike ride that you would go on with him was always like freaking intense, like the most intense 500%. thing. Right. It's like, and my mom at this point is so funny. She'll be like, I'm like riding with your dad, but like he never wants to just like mosey or like do like a gentle ride. Like it's always so intense. It's hard to keep up with him, blah, blah, blah. But it's like that was the the mentality. I feel like it's an interesting scenario when, and that's kind of how I grew up too. Like I always associated exercise with like intensity, yeah. purpose, you're gonna like run as fast as you can and and yeah. I that go big bit, or go home. Right. And that bit me in the butt 
in a, in more ways than one. I think that overexercising was definitely a part of my presentation, and and again, running my body more into the ground because um, I think exercise is really restorative, but there has to be enough rest in order for you to reap the benefits. And a lot of people are not getting enough rest and maybe not getting enough nutrition and they have other stressors. So there has to be a balance of stressors in in your life. And exercise is inherently a stressor, but we can adapt to that stress to where we're more resilient. But it is interesting, I think, coming from like my dad ran three or four Boston marathons, you know, just like an intense runner, how that mindset, I I don't know, it def- definitely didn't serve me well, I would say, to be hyper-intense runner. Yeah. It created some problems for me, but yeah, I'm glad you brought well, that up. You tell your mom that when I visit you in Cincinnati, I okay. would be more than willing to take a mosey-paced bike ride with her. And we could stop and smell the flowers. We could stop and take some selfies. Ooh. That is my my choice of... I, I prefer the leisurely activity right. version of biking rather than the ultra-intense. And, like, you know, like, depending. If, if I if I feel it up for it, maybe I'll go a little bit faster in the moment. Right. But, yeah, I, I think um, it's interesting how, like, that kind of stuff gets imprinted from our parents, like we observe their mm-hmm. behavior and their coping mechanisms or lack thereof. Right. Um, our teammates and our coaches too, like for anybody who was an athlete, I remember straight up and like, sometimes it's glorified. I remember right. at one point, so I did really well in rowing my freshman year of college. And then I had the drinking of the Creek water incident. If you don't know that story, go back to episode one folks. And I got a heck of a concussion and I whacked my head. And in the months following that, my athletic performance took a nosedive. Mm. And I I never got back to being quite as good as I was freshman year, not consistently, at least, despite training more and being in better and better shape and like having more years of coaching under my belt. Like it just, I never got back to that point. And I remember at one point, one of my coaches was so frustrated with me because I don't know, I think like they didn't get it. They thought I was being a bum or something. And my coaches in college motivated much more along the lines of like beating your mental health into a pulp mm. in hopes of motivating you, right. you know? And I remember at one point, like, I forget the exact scenario, but like something kind of shitty happened. And the coach, one of the coaches kind of like treated me like crap in front of the rest of the team in some way. Mm. I don't remember exactly. And I went to talk to him after about afterwards about it. And he was like, I just hope that one day you like take out your rage on the erg and you just sit down on the erg and you like rip some crazy, you know, sub seven minute 2K, which would be like Olympic level, by the way. Right. But like, he was like, I just hope that one day you like tap into your potential and like tap into your rage and you just like rip some crazy erg score and like show us what you're capable of. And I'm like, you're an idiot. It's right. like, if you've met me for five minutes, you know that that's not how I work. Like, right. if you beat me into the ground, I'm just going to curl up in a ball and shrivel up. I don't motivate that way. Right. But, like, the idea that you could, like, 
beat somebody up mentally for months or years. And then one day they're like, I'll show you. Ah, and they just get on the erg. Like, it's so preposterous to me. But it's almost like it's glorified, right? When he was saying, like, I hope you, like, get on that erg and, like, show us right. what you're made of. Like, it was, he was kind of glorifying this, like, picture of a person who has some mental health mm. issues and, like, is deeply traumatized or upset or full of rage. And then they take that rage out physically on the rowing machine. Like, he was glorifying that. Like, it would be right. this great thing. And it's like, yeah, that can be an outlet. And I, I you know, it's it's better that than, than hitting a couple of wine bottles and getting shit-faced drunk. But, like, is that the healthiest way to deal with the mental health repercussions of, like, somebody being emotionally abusive to you for years of your life? Like, no, maybe there's better ways of working through that rather than just taking out your physical aggression on an inanimate object and then getting, like, a really good ERG score out of it. So well, sometimes that behavior is glorified. It it really is. It's funny. I'll never forget. I think my, my brother, I think I was really upset after a, a basketball game or something. I was crying or something. I played bad. I don't know what it was. But my brother was like, girls are so funny. Like girls, not, not saying it in a bad way, because he was kind of pointing fault at guys too. But he's like, girls will like cry and kind of beat themselves up. He's like, guys will just punch a wall and watch their fists bleed, like, until they get over it. And it's like, it's sort of what you're mentioning. It's like, there's raginess, and it's like, kind of not necessarily the right way of thinking either. Like, I think both have their issues, like, where I think, in general, women probably internalize things more, and then sort of take it out on things more. Yeah. But, um... <laughs> Skullcap. <clears throat> right. It, it, yeah. It was, Go back to um, Nervine part yes. two episode, people. Ex- exactly. But... Yeah. Yeah. yeah but I, I think the... Good. Oh, I was just going to uh, wrap up with a bit of context. That coach, not all that much older than we were at the time. Like, he's maybe five, six years older than, mm. than my group was. And, uh... He used to tell us the story that when he was a rower in college, he was, he had a bad ERG score or something happened and he punched a hole in the wall and it was like a point of pride. Like, yeah, I I punched a hole in the ERG room at the such and such university ERG room and like, yeah. And it was like, okay, I can see that you're impressed with yourself for this, but like, I think you need therapy. Right. Like, that's, that's an abnormal thing. Because like, what if the wall wasn't there? Would you punch somebody in the face? Like, where do you draw right. the line? You know? Right. Um, so I don't know. I think, I think that that's um, more for another mental health related episode, perhaps. Um, but yeah, I think the athlete exercise is a double edged sword. It can be mm. wonderful and health promoting. And doing zero exercise is not a good thing. Right. But overdoing it or, like, the relationship you have between exercise and mental health is really important to analyze as well. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Okay. Well, let's think. So we we touched on microbial causes of diarrhea, which, again, we have entire episodes on hydrogen SIBO, hydrogen sulfide SIBO whole episode on parasites so that you could take a deep dive if you guys want to bile acid malabsorption we talked quite a bit about may i take us on a little bit of a tangent of a topic and then if you have any other other causes of diarrhea that you would like to discuss we can certainly do that 
So like I did with the constipation episode, I just pulled up a really brief snippet of traditional Chinese medicine, TCM, diagnoses that could be relevant for diarrhea. Um, my, my caveat, my little shtick first is that I am not an acupuncturist. I am right. not, cha- I am not trained in traditional Chinese medicine. I'm fascinated by it and I have a very basic rudimentary understanding of it. But that being said, there's a couple of patterns that similarly might be worth thinking about and maybe Chinese herbs or acupuncture or both would be useful for some of our listeners. So in this article that I found with my stellar Googling skills, I will add, they, this person said that there are six basic patterns in TCM that would cause diarrhea. So they said, the first three types of diarrhea are often acute, meaning short-lived, uh, causing a sudden onset, which will also include other symptoms depending on the cause. Uh, a cold, damp pattern of diarrhea will be accompanied by abdominal pain, fever, aversion to cold, stuffy nose, headache, and general aches and pains. Damp heat, which my understanding is that that's like a progression from the first one. I think you might start as cold damp and then move into damp heat if it gets trapped. Again, I'm not trained to this, people. Damp heat pattern diarrhea will be accompanied by abdominal pain, urgency, burning sensation with the bowel movements, irritability, and thirst. The third acute pattern is called retention of food. This is common when people have eaten poorly or have eaten far too much undigestible food or poor quality food. This causes diarrhea with abdominal pain, rumbling digestive sounds, fullness in the abdomen, burping, acid reflux, and loss of appetite. I think that last one sounds quite a bit more like a lot of the IBS that we tend to see with like that Mm. abdominal pain, GERD, indigestion-y kind of profile. Mm. And when I hear retention of food, it it makes me kind of conjure up an image of what TCM practitioners would call call stagnation. Like the food is stagnant and it's not moving through, which makes me kind of wonder if like digestive enzyme inefficiency or like low HCL or low bile, like one of those things could be involved perhaps. Then chronic diarrhea is the other three patterns. Liver and spleen dysfunction. Now I'll, I'll point out the name of the chi in TCM doesn't always perfectly correlate with the organ that we think about in Western medicine. So if you hear spleen chi, think more stomach in Western medicine, for example. Liver, I would say, loosely correlates with the Western anatomical organ, the liver. But if you hear spleen, think stomach for like symptom wise. But uh, liver and spleen dysfunction pattern diarrhea will be accompanied by distension and congestion in the chest and rib cage, burping, poor appetite, abdominal pain, diarrhea brought on by depressive moods, and frequent irritable ir- irritability or angry moods. Deficiency of spleen and stomach pattern diarrhea is accompanied by chronic loose stools, frequent bowel movements after eating heavy, oily or greasy foods, loss of appetite, bloating after eating, and fatigue after eating throughout the day. Again, that one seems pretty on par with a lot of our our patients as well. And then lastly, kidney and spleen deficiency pattern is due to a lack of yang or warming energy. 
The yang energy is what supplies the warmth and the ability to cook the food in our stomach, as well as transform it into something useful in the body. Um, you could think of it as like digestive gusto or digestive fire. Um, mm. When this function is impaired due to deficiency, there is early morning diarrhea, a cold sensation in the abdomen with pain and rumbling just before a bowel movement, a feeling of always being physically cold, and a sore low back and knees. So... Mm. Food for thought. This is just one article from the bowels of the internet. But if any of those patterns sounded familiar, like, oh, dang, like they even knew about the low back and the knee pain. Darn it. Right. You, you might want to try out acupuncture. It it could help with a surprising amount of things. I don't really, I can't wrap my head around how acupuncture works entirely, but I can tell you it, it works. Um, right. So those are just a couple of the patterns that seem to pop up in TCM that can cause diarrhea. Cool. Yeah, I think I think the only the only other thing to maybe talk a little bit about is like in the same way low fiber could cause constipation, low fiber could also cause diarrhea. Mm-hmm. Um, from a dietary standpoint, I this, I also think sometimes diarrhea there's can be some like it can be indicative of intolerance too. Mm. Um, whether it's like a lactose intolerance or like a gluten intolerance of some sort or some inability to kind of break down some particular food. Um, That could be something to explore. I feel like that's more associated with diarrhea than constipation typically. But that's kind of, I would say, the main things I I think about diet, diet wise. Yeah, I I think Um, so too. I think that you know, the fiber piece of it harkens back to feeding the good microbes and how important right. they are at regulating inflammation and like the gut lining integrity. And especially with insoluble fiber, kind of like bulking up and fluffing up the stools. Like right. you might not have any bulk to the stools because there's no bulk in the stool. Like it might be because of a lack of fiber. So yeah, I think that that's a valid point to bring up for two reasons. Right. I think sometimes with diarrhea too, like anything that it, and this is sort of a a expansion on what we were talking about with inflammation. Probably like with histamine, doing things that reduce or that stabilize mast cells would help with diarrhea if that was part of yeah. the equation. I think in the same vein, like doing things that could potentially help with inflammation can help with diarrhea. Uh-huh. So. I think things like butyrate or, or SBI or colostrum or, again, like vitamin A, vitamin D, like some of yeah. these things that kind of help inflammation at the gut lining could potentially yeah. help with diarrhea. I, I generally think that colostrum and SBI seem a little bit more helpful for diarrhea from what I've seen with clients. But yeah, I, I just wanted to throw that out there. Like anything that kind of helps with inflammation probably would would help a bit with constant or with diarrhea. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good point. And I will throw out there that inflammation is is a tricky beast. Maybe that needs to be our next episode. Actually, yeah. um, when we talk about inflammation, it's this big broad right. creature, and there's a lot of people who will be tested for inflammation, quote unquote, and their doctor might run a test like C-reactive protein or maybe homocysteine, and it'll come back normal. And the the well-intended doctor or nutritionist or whoever 
We'll get that result back and go, ah, you don't have any inflammation. You're good. And the person kind of blinks and is like, I, meanwhile, I have like fibro and IBS and rheumatoid arthritis. And like, I have all of this. Yeah. Like I have all these things. Clearly I'm inflamed. And it's important to know that there's a lot of flavors of inflammation. Right. And a lot of them are difficult to pick up on in blood work. Because there are compartments of the body, right? So, like, if we sample the 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 fluid and the cytokines and the chemicals from your liver, that's going to look different than if we sampled the fluids and the chemicals and the cytokines from your knee versus, you know, your glute muscle versus your eyeball versus whatever. So somebody can be very, very inflamed in one tissue and it won't show up in the blood or it might not show up in another tissue, but we are at the mercy of doing the majority of our testing through blood work and occasionally stool or saliva or urine. But like each of those things is a compartment of the body. Blood is one compartment, one tissue of the body. What's coming out in stool, like that's another compartment. Urine is kind of another compartment, saliva. Mm -hmm. So, like, if you get a negative test for inflammation, that doesn't get you off the hook for inflammation. It just means that it wasn't the flavor or it wasn't in the location that you were able to see it on that particular test. Um, But um, I think that just inflammation and its ability to impair the gut lining and motility and the gut-brain axis and digestive enzyme output, like, that it's very much on the table for anybody with uh, diarrhea or constipation, I would argue. Right. Right. Yep. 100%. Yeah. We should do an inflammation episode. We should. Add that to, add that to the listy list. Add it to the list. Done mm. deal. Well, guys, speaking of which, if you guys have suggestions for topics that we should cover on this podcast, by all means, reach out. Um, we haven't looked at the IBS Freedom Podcast email accounts in quite some time, so I would highly recommend not emailing us. Right. right. <laughs> Who's you know, managing like, that account? We don't know. Nobody. Nobody. I think it's like we set it up and then like both of us are just so busy that we're like, eh, we'll get to it later. It was good um, idea and thought. It is. Maybe someday we will man it a little bit more intentionally, but right now it's kind of a weird archive. Um, But if you have a suggestion for a topic that you would love us to cover, just message one or the other of us on Instagram and get get it to us that way. Or maybe comment on the YouTube video down below and we'll see those probably. Amy, your Instagram handle is? Amy underscore RD... Un- wait, Amy wait. underscore Hollenkamp underscore RD. Sorry, I'm <laughs> jumping ahead. I was I was quite confused because I was like, wait, did you update your Instagram account? Um, yes. So Amy underscore Hollenkamp underscore RD. And I'm triangle guts, all one word. But holler at us on Instagram if you have a topic that you would like to suggest. Otherwise, we will see you in the next episode of the IBS Freedom Podcast, and we will see what revelations and what stories we have to share with you next week. Thank you all for tuning in. You know the drill. If you're on YouTube, click like, subscribe, comment, all the things. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, if you could leave us a five-star review, that would be so deeply appreciated. And we love each and every one of you, and we will see you in the next episode of the IBS Freedom Podcast. Take care.